Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. You can take your simulation and we're out here, we bleed, we die. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Brian. Hi. Today's episode is Infinite Ammo, the fourth part of our series on Metal Gear Solid 2, The Sons of Liberty from 2001. Today, we're going to follow the story into Arsenal Gear while diving into our two protagonists, Snake and his white shadow or phantom, Raiden. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. Some oddly familiar lights come into focus. Well, fuzzy focus. We seem to be on the torture rack in Shadow Moses. The table tilts up, and in front of you is liquid... Raiden shakes out of his trance, realizing his naked-ass body is strapped down, and Ocelot and Solidus are talking as if he's not even there. Solidus, who now sports an eye patch, recognizes Raiden, or as he knew him, Jack the Ripper. As it turns out, Jack was a child soldier under Solidus's regime during the Liberian War. Though Jack had assumed his training was all VR, he now realizes he or someone else, was actively suppressing his memories of being a child soldier, and an excellent one at that. Solidus leaves, but not before Ocelot tells him he looks just like Big Boss, which Solidus eats up. Ocelot, on his own way out, tells Raiden that he's not only trapped here in Arsenal gear, but that he's also trapped in the memory of Shadow Moses. Something something S3 plan. Which is interesting. I always like that it's it's not like... This is the part where it stops being like hinting at it. This is literally the same room. Like it's the same. It's almost like the same polygons as the, as the original shadow Moses torture room. Yeah. So like it's, it's stopped being like an in universe sort of like eerily similar to shadow Moses. And now it's just like literally started pasting shadow Moses into the, into this reality. And like, this is where it all starts to break apart and become, especially the first time through completely incomprehensible. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, because uh, like I tried to describe there, when you come back from saving your game, you are actually shown what Solid Snake sees on the Shadow Moses torture rack. And like I said, it tilts up and it looks like liquid there before it cuts to what Raiden's seeing. But throughout the scene, uh, Solidus and Ocelot are basically walking across the camera in the same way that Liquid and Ocelot did uh, in the first game. Um, It's the same thing because there's like a window behind them. It's very much the same setup as... Uh, Shadow Moses was, or that part of Shadow Moses. I can't remember what part of the you know infrastructure it was in, but the torture room. I don't think there's anything. Yeah, <laughs> it's just the torture room. But and even the table is literally exactly the same. The way it's kind of cut off at the corners, um, the way that Raiden's bound and all that stuff. So uh, very interesting. And they're like you said, they're making it explicit now. It's not just supposed to remind the gamer, but they're flat out telling you uh, that's what's happening. So I think more than more than flat out telling you i i'm saying like there it's like literally transplanting in like the realities are bleeding together in in and it's it's like especially on a second playthrough like it becomes this is like the start of of the real the fourth wall just sort of not existing anymore no i agree instead of being instead of being broken or punctured now it's just kind of ceased to exist at all 
Yeah, right. It's not uh, just, hey, we broke the fourth wall here, but now the game is going to exist in this fourth wall space, uh, especially this part specifically, um, because there's a space that exists between the player and the game or the narrative of the game where a lot of what Metal Gear Solid 2 does, um, especially when we get into the kernel stuff. And I think this is, you know, probably the start of where it's really just the rest of the game is going to be kind of like this. Anyways, exit Ocelot, enter Olga. She tells him that Snake has all his gear and will meet him shortly. She herself is an agent of the Patriots, and her mission is to support Raiden in exchange for her child's life. Remember her pregnancy from the tanker incident? Olga promises to free Raiden, but he must wait for her to get clear so she isn't suspected. Rose and Raiden shoot the Kodak shit in the meantime. Raiden asks Rose if Solidus's revelations have driven her away, but Rose reveals one of her own. She was tasked by the Patriots to spy on Raiden the whole time, that she changed who she was to better suit Jack's desires. Funny thing, of course, is that she did fall for him in the process. Just as she tells Jack that she herself is pregnant, the transmission cuts in a really weird way. Raiden's bonds are then released. And I, This is a minor thing, and I think it's something we talk about more next time. I, there's the question people always had of like, uh, cause the Colonel is pretty obviously an AI the entire time, but Rose is supposed to be the real person at some point. I, I, I've always read it that this is when like they stop her from like, she just, she no longer appears in the game at this, from this point from after this, it's an AI version of Rose. Cause obviously it's, it is during the infamous S3 cutscene. But like, uh, I always personally just read it as like, she, she was, she was either wasn't supposed to reveal that she was pregnant or that she was an agent of the Patriots, but she was removed from the mission at this point. And from the end of the, from this point to the end of the game, it's no longer, it is AI Rose, whatever AI that's supposed to be. Is it supposed to be GW or is it supposed to be another one? I never really understood that. The kernel is GW. Yeah. yeah we'll talk about that more, but yeah. We'll talk about it a little more also later in this episode, but uh, you're right. We don't, I think this is the last time we hear from her until the very final scene, like after everything, when you actually see Jack and Rose together. Yeah. Um, but uh, we'll talk about which Rose and Colonel are talking to you throughout the rest of this game uh, as we progress through. Because I believe it's GW now, but for the final conversation, it's just the governing Patriots AI. But I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, so... Um, Raiden must sneak through a hangar filled with Metal Gear Rays, but the ass-naked Foxhound member is hardly the weirdest part of this section. Raiden starts receiving incoherent and even threatening messages from the colonel. This, of course, is perhaps MGS2's most infamous moment. Narratively, that 90% uploaded worm cluster has corrupted GW, Arsenal Gear's AI, and Otacon informs you that the calls are coming from inside the house. To us, the player, the game seems to be telling you to save, to turn off the game, to complete mission objectives from previous Metal Gear titles. And those are just the ones that make sense. So this is probably the thing that endures most about Metal Gear Solid 2 is mm -hmm. while you're you know, covering your balls, uh, running around ass naked, trying to avoid enemy soldiers and catching a cold, uh, you start getting calls from the colonel, some that you have to answer, some that you do not. And the coherence, as I mentioned, uh, of them varies from, you know, this is something that this colonel would theoretically say to Raiden to things that don't make sense within the context of the narrative, like, uh, you know, turn off the game, stuff like that. There's one where you just start naming train stations in Japan, uh, which was one I didn't really know until I actually looked that one up. Yeah. Um, 
screenshots from Metal Gear 1 on MSX with Infiltrate the Enemy Fortress Outer Heaven. Like, I could go on. There's, you know, over, I think, 20 or 30 uh, different weird calls that happen at this moment. Yeah, and the calls, the thing that I think people don't talk, like, something that's really noticeable, especially looking back on the series, is that, so, this Arsenal gear is, is weird and dark and terrifying. There's computer code everywhere. It looks like a VR mission in a lot of ways. But what's important to remember is that we, you see Arsenal gear in MGS4 and it doesn't look anything like this. Like, it just kind of looks like a, it has, like, the same kind of burnished, like, not burnished, uh, polished steel, you know, the MG, the, the Metal Gear metal look, whatever that, whatever you, the texture you would call that. Like, blue, almost blue steel. Right. And then Magnum and then all the other ones. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but no, so, like, it, it's, it's, like, but, like, that, that MGS4 part is very obviously a real place whereas this seems like it just exists in a void sort of a liminal space between dimensions almost where there's just nothing around it it's black and that's a that's a common thing with early 2000s games where they didn't have memory to render like huge skyboxes is that a lot of the outside outside the bounds of the level like to, the tony hawk games are famously if you can get outside the bounds of the level you're just sort of in forever space there's nothing there yeah yeah um but like this is weird because it, it i don't think it's it's hard to describe but it's just bizarre. It's such a bizarre place. Uh, as I said, uh, I, I've re- made reference to a few times, all the names of the, the rooms in Arsenal Gear are all the jejunum, the stomach, the ascending colon. Those are all digestive organs. And it, I don't know if the metaphor is supposed to just be... I mean, there's the, the obvious, the belly of the beast metaphor, because that's where you are. But I also, I've always taken it to be that Raiden is being devoured and turned into something different. Because he's a completely different character now. Like... We'll talk about this more later, but he's no longer, he's not, from this point on, he is no longer Solid Snake's Phantom. He's something different. He's a different character with a real backstory who has, it makes his own choices independent of you. That's really, the really weird thing is the, I mean, I, I'm sure that they weren't going to be allowed to hang Dong in a, in a 2001 <laughs> game, but like, but like the fact that he covers himself is, it's completely independent of your control. And it's bizarre because like, if it was a real situation, he it's a life or death situation. Like he's going to be killed. He wouldn't be doing that. He's only doing it because he doesn't want you, the player, to see him. And so he's he's specifically making choices that are against that you you have no control over. He sneezes sometimes without any input from the player. Like it's it's very different. Yeah. It's it's the game, you were no longer from this from, from the torture scene to this point, it stops you were no longer playing a Metal Gear Solid One clone. And Raiden is no longer a Solid Snake clone. It's become, it's almost like they decided to do that. But instead of neatly transitioning, you have to play through this weird gestation where it becomes another creature entirely. Like it's metamorphizing. What is it? Metamorphosizing in front of you. And like, it's just, the game is destroying itself. It's bleeding over into itself. It's bleeding over into other games. This is the point where, where when people talk about how MGS2 kind of doesn't exist in the same universe or canon as the rest of the series this is the part because like this part cannot as weird as Metal Gear can get like there's almost no way that this section can exist in the same universe as like Naked Snake going through a jungle <laughs> it just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't work and it's fascinating that they've tried to had to force this stuff into the fish and mailed stuff is what I always call it because that's what uh that comes later but that's it's just so bizarre and strange and deliberately like 
Stanley Kubrick famously, The Shining is designed as a movie to hurt you. Like it's designed to confuse you and frighten you. And this is like that turned up to 20 where it's just like 10 minutes of complete insanity. It's completely detached from reality and it, it destroys the game you're playing. That game does not exist anymore. And what you play from here on is just something very different and something that's never been done anywhere else. It, it's a, the last hour and a half, two hours, maybe two and a half hours of Metal Gear Solid 2 are a, a genre of their own. It's, it's, it's a thing that exists entirely on its own. Yeah, that Kubrick point really has me thinking back to one of this game's major inspirations, uh, Peter uh, Paul Auster's uh, City of Glass novel, because you have a protagonist who's confronted with a very confusing mystery, and the end of the story isn't about the protagonist putting everything straight. Instead, the confusion overwhelms the protagonist, and at the end, he's just rendered as like, he is no longer in control and, you know, he becomes a victim of that. And I'm not saying that's the same thing happening here, but I think that level of confusion and the incoherence overwhelming the narrative and the character definitely comes through. Like you said, when Raiden moves around in this part, the floor actually lights up in a visual signal that's more like the VR missions than it is any other place. You were just describing like most sur surfaces in the games are, you know, whether it's Shadow Moses or Grozny Grad or the big shell um, above water, it all looks roughly the same, um, doesn't have a nice shiny sheen to it, but this is almost lighting up your footsteps as you go along. Um, like it's a living, breathing thing, like you said. Uh, the belly of the beast stuff, of course, uh, it's always going to make me think of Pinocchio and Monstro. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, it's right in emerging as a real boy almost. Uh, you know, like you said, he's no longer going to be uh, just that shadow or that meme of Solid Snake after this. Um, definitely it's almost when he encounters a uh, snake a little bit after this, that uh, we start seeing uh, like that growth of Raiden as an individual person. And that also ends up being like the ending salvo where snake says you have to decide who you are. Um, but that I think, like you said, really starts here. And in the same way that shadow Moses, we talked about how all that uh, like from the Harrier fight through uh, the Vulcan Reagan Raven fight is where snake kind of self actual actualizes this is kind of where Raiden is uh kind of self-actualizing in his own way in the kind of like back half beginning of the third act part of the story so um which is another echo of of course MGS1 so uh anything else you want to add on this whole part it's I mean there's so much to talk about this is we're kind of mixed melding episodes here because the next episode about the ending this is also part of the ending but I think um I think thematically, it's really just, I want to get into this a little harder next week, but like, uh, like Dadaism is really like postmodernism is, is what it's, it's what it's, it is a postmodern game, but like specifically, I feel like this part is supposed to be Dadaist in a lot of ways where it's just deliberately confusing. And like, it's, it's taking, taking the fact that like, this is an anti-war series, it's a, because the, the, I don't know if people know what Dadaism is, but like the, the primary concept of it is that it came around around World War One, and the idea was that the world that these artists lived in that was capable of this, this sort of atrocities that occurred in World War One was a world that did not deserve art that made sense or made them feel comfortable. And so this is sort of, I really feel like this is, because I know, I know that Kojima knows what Dadaism is. I mean, come on. Uh, I don't know if he can explain it as very well, but he knows what it is. Um, like it's, uh, this idea that that this game, like this universe, this particular 
version of Metal Gear is not one that deserves like a, a comp like a, a comprehensive or coherent story that makes sense. It's it's a uh, it's it's moved beyond anything reassuring or 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 knowable or like any sort of conventional concept of a video game narrative. And now it's just there to confuse you. And that's what, cause it's what you deserve for your many crimes, you and Raiden and snake and specifically you, the player thinking you could possibly be solid snake. <laughs> and we'll, we'll definitely get into this more uh, next week because I promise you, I'm also probably going to mention that Pinocchio analogy again. Cause I know I put it in next week's notes, but I think that's a very good point. And we can honestly talk about philosophy of games and, you know, a lot of people who complain about Metal Gear Solid are people who are like, I just want to pick up a game and play and have fun. And instead, I have to listen it's to... It's not political. What are you talking about? Yeah. Um, so you you can see how um, there's a different philosophy. And, I, you know, sometimes games need to be, you know, a little bit grueling or confusing and not just instant gratification and, you know, tapping on your touch screen yeah, yeah. and getting points. And power uh, fantasy. Like, it's that whole power fantasy thing. And um, I wanted to say, too... Go ahead. This is... Sometimes Metal Gear Solid 2 is talked about as like quote unquote the first uh, philosophical game, and it's not. Like plenty of games. I mean, there was a uh, there was a um, I have no mouth and I must scream game that came out before this. But I I feel like this is the first time that uh, well a this is the first time that any kind of real. I mean, you can say that some of the Final Fantasy games kind of dabbled in in some sort of nihilism to this point, which is you know reasonable. And it's not like games were poorly written. But I think this the technology had become to the point. This is the first time you could do something like this, like actually in a three D environment, truly confuse someone. Because it, before this, a lot of you know a lot of uh, video game stuff was representational and it was meant to be. You're kind of meant to fill in the blanks with a lot of it, you know. Mm -hmm. And here, the blanks are not being the, the blanks are being. They are not you. You there is no. You don't have to use your imagination for anything in this part of the game. It is being used for you. Yes. And I, uh, when we actually uh, talk, talk about Raiden later in this episode, um, I'm going to get to that point specifically. I hear it's amazing when the famous purple stuffed worm in Flapjaw space with the tuning fork does a raw blink on Harry Carey Rock. I need scissors. 61. Riding clears the ray hanger and you finally meet up with Snake. And I mean solid fucking Snake. Gone are the Navy SEAL fatigues. It's solid Snake in all his blue sneaking suit glory, cutting the heroic image that all gamers wanted to play as in 2001. So this seems like a good time to run down Snake's role in this game, as he is the ur-text for the game's protagonist, Jack. Uh, but, you know... Snake might also still be the protagonist of this story, even though you've played as Raiden, you know, for the dominance of this game. So I, I would have another take. Like, I may save that one, but classically, like, actually, in the terms like the protagonist is the character whose whose des whose desires propel the story forward. I think Solidus is the protagonist. But yeah. Oh, no, that's I think that's also a valid reading. Um, I guess I was almost uh imposing a false dilemma is it is it solid snake or is it Raiden? i didn't even consider that it could be someone else but i think that's actually a really good one i don't think i don't think you Raiden can be the protagonist of this game in any sense other than he's the one you control for most of it but like he has no desires he doesn't know what's going on or what he wants he has no like in this in the same way that there's not really an antagonist i would say that solidus is the closest thing to the classical protagonist of the, of the inciting character the character whose desires 
and motivations are what drive the plot. That's I think that's him for sure. Yeah, but yeah, Solid is would be the other choice. I think he just he's not in. He's a secondary character for most of the game, and then here he becomes Solid Snake, and I think that's what you're getting at, right? So Solid Snake again, voiced by David Hayter, and something you mentioned the other day, I think is important to emphasize here that Hayter gives a different performance each turn out as Snake, and I mean that in a good way. Like this Snake sounds different from. MGS1 snake, um, who definitely sounded, you know, younger just naturally, but this is definitely a snake that seems to have more purpose and even understands himself, his relationship with Hal and the people around him. And even more so, or he's even shown some growth from where he was, say, in the tanker incident, which was just an earlier part of this game. And this is also a distinct performance from, say, Naked Snake in MGS3 or Big Boss in Peace Walker, Ground Zeroes, all that. Or Old Snake or... Venom Snake, as we all know, he, he voiced. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hell of a change in his uh, voice register. But yeah. If the back half of MGS1 was the self-actualization of Solid Snake, as we just discussed, this is Snake at his peak. Uh, not a tool for the government or anyone else, but fighting for what he believes in. A future, he says later on. Uh, but this is definitely the most unchained we see Snake. And, you know, we get this third person view of Solid Snake for the entire Big Shell incident, which is, you know, part of what uh, Kojima wanted to do as his mission statement for this game is like he wants to take the uh, what's it called camera you know, change the way the camera interacts with Solid Snake. This is kind of in the vein of stuff like Akira Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress, where the quote-unquote main characters or the audience surrogate or the one who has the most screen time is just these two bumbling fools, um, you know, who actually would be the model for C-3PO and R2-D2, though those two droids would be less incompetent. Um, Well, at least R2, uh, for that sake. Uh, But the real hero is Toshiro Mifune's character, um, you know, who's a great warrior. And in this way Raiden is kind of acting like those characters getting a watching you know Solid Snake slash Toshiro Mifune you know be the badass that he is and the video game as a medium allows you to take that trope of you know the secondary set of eyes on your heroic character but change the way that you you know have that experience by actively shifting you into that camera role where you're doing stuff you're interacting with this character um and you have some you know you get to be the camera in a way as a character on top of everything else that comes with uh Raiden and you know you you mentioned this specifically last episode is uh you know snakes having all these sort of epic battles on the side here um he has fights with uh fortune uh with ninja slash olga um and you know he's theoretically doing those things that he was doing at say shadow moses but not as part of a grander script by you know patriots or just there as a vector of fox die he's actually out there not just kicking ass but as it turns out with like say olga he actually figures out a way to you know come to terms and get their story straight um it kind of feels like that happens with fortune a little bit after the fact as well so and all of this again is just going to be mgs challenging games as a power fantasy where the character that we all wanted to play as he is doing really incredible amazing stuff but we don't get to enjoy it it's one of the few times snake isn't really operating under the control of the player or the patriots um you know so kind of mixing in that mixing the metaphor of snakes not under the control of the player the video game player but also not the control of say the kingmakers in this world whether it's solidus or the patriots or ocelot or what have you so like i said he's not a tool of the government or anyone else and you the player count as part of that anyone else yeah and the game 
actively reminds you that Snake is better than you and is better than Raiden. Um, because as you've mentioned a lot, you know, he has more health as you're fighting through the colon of Arsenal Gear. Um, and, you know, usually these non-player characters, when they're involved in an actual gameplay scenario, they don't do much during the game. But every time Snake is involved with a Raiden scenario, whether he's in the Kasatka fighting the Harrier with you or fighting the Arsenal Tengu with you, Snake is actually doing stuff. Like, he actually inflicts damage. He kills way more people than you ever hope to, you know, you really could by yourself as a player in this game. I suppose you could. It's just, it, it, you'd have to really... You have to be really going like I think you have to try it multiple times. Is how I always read it. Like it's just tough. Uh, well, I, I did want to say that that, that like it is in a, like a meta sense. It is quite. It's literally the same model snake from the tanker. He does all the same stuff. This snake shows up to emasculate you more than Raiden. I would say because Raiden. I'm going to mention this again later, but we just found out that Raiden has like this really hardcore, brutal backstory where he's like maybe the most experienced warrior in the entire game is like this incredibly tough, cool, masculine guy. So snake is here to make you seem like a coward. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a very interesting take on it. He's, he's not, Oh, I wanted to say that he, um, he literally points to his head. It's where I got the episode title and says he has infinite ammo. This is why he doesn't need all his ammo stuff, which is a cheat from the first game, which implies that Snake did all the side stuff from Metal Gear Solid 1 somehow. It's just confused. It doesn't make any sense. It's complete nonsense. It's completely absent. It's just completely detached from the rules that this game has, has put forward. Yeah, I think... I forget what the MGS1 uh, finished scenarios are, but it's like if you beat the game one way, you get the stealth camouflage. And if you beat the game the other way, maybe it has to do with Meryl and Otacon. Like if Otacon's the one who lives, um, you get the stealth camo because, you know, um, Hal was the inventor of the stealth camo. But if you do the ending where Meryl, you know, lives and you outdo the torture, um, on the next playthrough on that save file, you get the infinite ammo headband, which doesn't actually change how the snake character is rendered, like visually. Um, but then, of course, you have infinite ammo, which is, you know, pretty powerful because all these games are very survivalist, count the bullets, and having infinite ammo definitely changes the way you would play the game. Uh, so, but like you said, it's absolutely nonsense within the context of this narrative. Again, how many how many people who beat Metal Gear Solid One actually got that? So again, Snake is better than you. He got he saved Meryl. You did. Yeah. No, I I had never even thought about that, but I love it. And again, it's um, this kind of infinite ammo stuff is stuff that kind of exists in between the player and the story of the game. It kind of exists in that middle space. That again, this entire portion of Arsenal Gear, um, the Colonel calls the infinite ammo nods. Um, all that stuff is stuff that don't really make sense in the narrative, but makes sense to us as the experiencer or player of the game or games in this case, because it's heavily calling back to Metal Gear Solid One. So Snake gives Raiden back his equipment as well as a gift. Olga's ninja blade. Olga left it for Raiden, and besides, Snake's not one for blades when he's got that aforementioned infinite ammo. Together, our heroes fight through the guts of Arsenal gear until they finally come face to face with Fortune, still operating under the assumption that Snake killed her father. Snake tells Raiden to go on, while Snake stays back to hold off the leader of Dead Cell. Raiden emerges on top of Arsenal gear, which has shed all remnants of the big shell by now. Here, he's met by the voice of Solidus, who catches him up on the latest transpirings. In GW's databank, Ocelot discovered the S3 plan, or Solid Snake Simulation. 
You see, the entire Big Shell incident was all staged, a grand show put on by the Patriots. It was to prove that if the situation need arise, they could engineer their own solid snake to take down any big boss-like figure that could threaten the Patriots' control. So we can probably start you know, probably say something here about what the Solid Snake simulation is. It won't be the true S3 plan that we'll talk about a little bit later, but I think it is part of that bigger S3 plan. Why don't you start? I don't know where to start with it, because we've kind of been talking about it. Like, the whole game has been, the whole uh, Big Shell section has been this this S3 plan of just trying to recreate Solid Snake. I guess the thing I always I take from it is that... Um, it's around this point and maybe a little earlier when the weird hyper reality of MGS one comes back, because that was what's really missing in MGS two is like none of the Stillman stuff or the stuff with fat man or vamp, maybe vamp a little bit, but um, to this point, none of the big shell stuff has had that same sort of bizarre kind of uh, almost double think where like impossible things are happening, but everyone's still using military acronyms and talking about how everything is, you know, talking about it like it's a real thing that kind of comes back around this point. Yeah, when Snake comes back, and I think I don't know if that's the I don't know if that was deliberate, or if it was just if it was just uh, because Snake was in, they started writing the game more like it was MGS one again. I, I'm not really sure how to read that, but I think it's interesting. Oh, that's I really like that idea that the hyper reality kind of was not there while Snake wasn't, you know, quote unquote there in the same way that he is now in the narrative. Uh, because even when you have, yeah, I would say Vamp kind of breaks it, but this game also has its own cyborg ninja, but it's defanged of that hyper-reality from MGS1. Um, not only because we get the reveal of Olga, but even when you see the ninja and you know they encounter Raiden, instead of having this like cathartic battle about you know wanting to die and battle against the great snake it's like hey i'm a ninja here's a cell phone like that's literally what happens in this game like it's not a person suffering a mental breakdown it's just a person in a ninja suit like very obviously it's a cosplayer role yeah the stillman stuff is not it's just like kind of tragic it's not really like there's nothing about it that's bizarre hyper real there's no like sentient wolves showing up there's no you know snake's not he's not a musher um, but this shit, like, it, it's just kind of gone from the game. Like, there's there's not a lot of... Because MGS2 is not frightening. Like, the, the big show, it's not meant to be frightening. It's just very much like a serious hostage situation thing going on. Yeah. And, like, Raiden is confused and frightened, but, like, the player is not. And then that stuff starts coming back here a little bit and being confusing and bizarre. And it's, it's yeah, it's very strange. Yeah. I think the two things I would say about uh, this S3 plan in terms of the Solid Snake simulation is that I know I've been kind of uh, beating a dead horse here with talking about how much this part of the game kind of exists in that kind of meta space in between the player and the game. It's basically telling you that this we're making a sequel to Metal Gear Solid 1 is the plot of Metal Gear Solid 2, basically. Like, the familiar story beats, which are common to any sequels, whether it's video games or movies or whatnot, um, they're actually making explicit that that was the model for building this narrative or this game or this story, however you want to, you know, label or categorize the experience that is Metal Gear Solid 2. Um, the other part I like, and this is probably getting more into the narrative aspects of it, and I'm going to invoke again a movie that I love more than anyone else, The Matrix Reloaded. It's I like the idea of how the Patriots are coming up with a plan in the Solid Snake simulation that's like the anomaly is part of the system of control again. Um, you know, 
part of the Matrix Reloaded is the architect explaining to Neo that actually, you know, you're supposed to be this anomaly. We found a way to work that into our system of control. So even if things get a little bit out of hand, we can still rein things back in and return to, you know, square one, never return to zero, return to square one. And that's kind of what um, this is because the Patriots have developed this kind of global information war control system. But every now and then a big boss or a solidus or a liquid threatens it, they're able, you know, and that's actually an outgrowth of the system that they themselves have created over the past half century. But then when they need to, they can have a Neo-like figure, a solid snake or anyone at this point, if Raiden is successful, kind of emerge and kind of take out that threat for them. And then everything kind of returns back to the status quo. And it just becomes another, uh, way of control for the Patriots. I like also that this, uh, the Raiden revelation is coming around the same time as this, like his backstory is, it kind of defeats the idea that the Patriots could just make anyone into Solid Snake. It's like, no, Raiden is extremely qualified. Mm-hmm. Like he's, like I said, he's it, maybe the most experienced combatant in this entire situation at this point, him or Ocelot. Yeah. Because like the implication is that he was fighting for like a decade as a child soldier and was the most successful and brutal. And like, that's more experience than Solid Snake probably has. It's like, it, it, it really, the idea that he's some green rookie is just completely destroyed. And even he thought that. Like, it's just, it's just very strange. It's, like I said, this, this, the, that other part of the game, the big, specifically the big shell part of the game has been devoured. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, I agree. But, Enough time for talk, though. Uh, Time for Raiden to face down a dozen-plus Metal Gear rays. Raiden perseveres for a while, but the task is too much. He's ready to accept death at Solidus's hands until Olga shows up to defend Raiden. She tells Jack one last truth, that her child's life depends on Raiden succeeding, so she gives her life to protect Jack. As all this happens, the Metal Gear rays all start to freak out, presumably the worm cluster again, and Solidus has to take on several himself. Raiden passes out at this point, and when he comes to, he sees Snake has been captured by Fortune, with Ocelot and Solidus lording over them. Solidus monologues about his true intention, to obtain a list of the Patriots and hunt them down, all while the Patriots would be too busy trying to stop the rest of Dead Cell with their newly stolen Arsenal gear. And it's at this point, Ocelot, just like at the end of the Tanker chapter, starts applauding everyone for their performances. The S3 plan wasn't just Raiden's training colonel. Everyone involved was duped on some level to play their roles in this simulation of Shadow Moses. Solidus Liquid, Dead Cell Foxhound, Worm Cluster Fox Die, everyone was on their little narrative tracks as defined by the Patriots. This isn't just about creating perfect soldiers, it's about total control of the situation. What they didn't predict was the appearance of the actual Solid Snake, though. Ocelot, determined to drop the curtain on this whole charade, shoots Fortune right through the chest. You see, the magic protecting her from bullets and bombs this whole time was actually technology developed by the Patriots, hidden in her gear. Oh, and he was the one who killed her father, not Snake. Just FYI and all that. I'll give you one guess as to what kind of technology was protecting her. Did you guess nanomachines? Then you are correct. (laughs) 
Uh, I think the headcanon I've come up with, I might have mentioned it, is uh, Ocelot shows off that he has a little like transmitter thing attached to his belt that deflects bullets for him. Um, I feel like maybe that could have been belt built into her gun, um, especially because it shoots electromagnetic particles or whatever. Um, that's kind of how I had canon it because I really don't want to fall back on nanomachines because but it's probably we do plenty of that in MGS4. It is probably nanomachines. God damn it. Ocelot boards Ray and is prepared to bomb the shit out of the rest of the cast when Fortune steps forth. Her hands outstretched, she redirects the missiles away from Snake, Raiden, and Solidus. She really is Lady Luck, Snake remarks as Fortune finally dies. And well, if shit wasn't bonkers enough already, Liquid Snake chooses this moment to appear, once again possessing Ocelot via his transplanted arm. It was in fact Liquid who leaked to Snake and Otacon what was going down at the big shell. The chaos would not only give Liquid a shot at Snake again, but he also intended to get the Patriots' names to take them out himself. Liquid sets Arsenal gear on a crash course for Manhattan while he sets off on his own task, but not without a solid Snake hero moment to surpass all others. Snake breaks free of his bonds and proceeds to run and leap off Arsenal in pursuit of Liquid and Ray. Godspeed, little doodle. Raiden and Solidus are left atop Arsenal, which crashes into Lower Manhattan and leaves them atop Federal Hall a lot of which isn't shown to us due to 9-11 happening two months before this game's release. Before a final showdown, Solidus explains his goal to free the world of patriot control, his legacy to the world in lieu of children he can never have, like all the snakes. The Colonel AI now calls, giving Raiden his last briefing and last objective. The latter is, of course, to kill Solidus and ensure Rosemary and Olga's child live, but the former... who boy... The colonel tells Raiden that they, the Patriots, aren't actually human, but digital presences. He, it, further explains that the S3 plan did not stand for Solid Snake Simulation, though that was a synecdoche for the bigger picture. S3 stands for Selection for Societal Sanity, a full information control regime used to invoke Patriot world order, analogous to American hegemony or imperialism. The big shell ruse was to see how well these all-controlling AIs can do crisis management using Shadow Moses as a model, since that event escaped Patriot control and angered them into the events of this game. What the colonel explains is a system of filtering data to battle all the trivial information accumulating, preserved in all its triteness. He frames it as natural selection for data, but of course based on what the Patriots want. Let's pin this for next week's wrap-up episode because we still got business to take care of here. That's pretty much entirely what the last episode's going to be about. <laughs> like it's, that's Correct. not something you can just sort of... It's 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 the thing in MGS2 to me. Yes, uh, 100%. It is the theme of the game, uh, meme, so to speak. Uh, Solidus and Raiden throw down two katanas verse one. In the end, Raiden prevails as a spine-severed Solidus snake suffers a fatal blow and falls to his death. Solidus takes his last breath at the feet of George Washington. Well, his statue, anyhow. As first responders finally arrive to deal with the carnage of Arsenal and Solidus, Snake and Raiden unite on Wall Street. Snake got a tracer on Ray, but mo more importantly, obtained a data disk that may contain the Patriot's location. Post-credit spoiler, they're all dead, at least for a hundred years. What the hell? 
Raiden wants to join Snake and Anakin on their mission, but Snake tells Raiden he's got other business to attend to first. He's got to talk to Rose, and he's got to figure out who he is himself. And let's do that ourselves. Let's talk about who Raiden is. Raiden, voiced by Quentin Flynn, uh, he is our game's, let's say, primary protagonist from a player sense. The the gameplay protagonist, yeah. Yes. um, The protagonist's bait and switch from the beloved Solid Snake to this femboy Raiden was received as well as you'd expect in 2001. Critics loved the game still, as did I, but as we talked about a few episodes back, it took some time for opinions to come around on Raiden. Let's step back first, though, and break him down like we do. A lot of this is straight up said in the game by the AI colonel. You know, I know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards. Uh, Raiden in Japanese translates to thunder and lightning or thunder god. Hello, Mortal Kombat. And was also the name of Japanese aerial fighters in World War II, which allied forces referred to as Jack. And of course, Jack the Ripper, which again is explicitly invoked by the game itself, Um, So that's all to say that power and weapon and identity um, are all baked into Raiden's identity. And then, of course, there's a little bit of that Jack and Rose from Titanic that factors into the naming of the character. And then this game also has a king, Solidus, queen, fortune, and Jack completes the set. Um, They're just cards to be shuffled, dealt, and played by the Patriots. And I really... There's another little meaning for it for his name, too, because... If he's meant to represent the player, at least till the S3 stuff comes out, uh, he is he's the identity that the player themselves jacks into. He's a jack for you to oh. be kind of transplanted into this world. I think that was also probably deliberate. Like there's Yeah. He I mean, Kojima definitely would know what that word means in English and how it has so many strange different and disparate and completely unrelated meanings, like a lot of English words do. So Right. And I didn't even want to finish that whole card playing analogy because then, you know, I think Ocelot becomes the ace, but then you basically have to say that Liquid and Solid are the two jokers that come in every deck. And now I need to make a, I'm going to become a joker meme for both Solid and Liquid when I post this episode online. Um, But again, and I just want to, you know, I've said this like six times now in this episode, but all this stuff about where this character, Jack Riding, gets his name is, again, explicitly told to you by the Colonel AI during this, you know, whole Arsenal gear part where the actual production and storytelling and creation of this game becomes part of the story itself. Now, flipping over to visual design, Raiden was originally conceived as a woman. Um, Though he'd wind up a man in the final version of the game, the construction of gender is something we'll dive into shortly here. Uh, But supposedly, uh, Kojima received a letter from a fan after MGS1 asking for more Metal Gear games, but not to have to play as an old man again. Uh, Maybe in that sense, it's no surprise that Raiden also appears to be modeled after David Bowie, someone who defies traditional gender constructs, not to mention Kojima's, one of Kojima's favorite artists. and Not his favorite artist, though. Yes. And David Bowie will uh, become a major Metal Gear uh, Solid touchstone, especially starting with Metal Gear Solid 3 moving forward. Perhaps unsurprisingly, I think I think he said his favorite artist is New Order. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, no, I wanted to say also, there's a, there's a bit... Uh, to link him again to his probably his closest peer, uh, well, God, what is his name from Nier? Yokotaro. Yeah, Yokotaro. Because uh, I think it's interesting that the the original Nier, which is also funny that Nier Automata is is uh, named after a character from a game, like a character that does not appear in its game. But the in the original Nier, uh, 
famously there's the two versions of it the western and the east and the eastern version and the western version you play as a man like a middle-aged man who's protecting his daughter and in the eastern version you play as a younger man to protecting his sister everything else is the same it's just different character the character design is different i think there's something about uh because mgs1 is such a western game and they all are i think it's interesting the idea that i would i would bet a significant amount of money that the person who sent in that letter was a japanese player like i'd be amazed if it was an american who wanted to play as a younger person mm-hmm. we don't we don't want to do that we want we all want to be sam fisher at least outwardly, at least that's the perception we give off is we want to be Sam Fisher, Clint Eastwood, John Wayne. And those guys are not notably not young, even like, you know, prime John Wayne was not young. Yeah. He was not a, a young, a, a lithe young man in his prime. He was an old fart. That was the whole thing. James Bond, Indiana Jones. They're not like young spry guys, you know, Rambo Rambo yeah. in the first movie was like an old man, like broke, like physically like an old, you know, he, he'd, he'd spent the better part of his life already. Uh, Don McLean is not like a, I mean, Bruce Willis was what in his late thirties, mid thirties, probably late thirties at that point. Yeah. But like, but yeah, he was supposed to be like a, he, his stick had grown tired. He wasn't like an up and coming cop. He was, you know, old, he was an old cop. Uh, yeah, that's like all our, all our action heroes are old. That's our thing. Like that's, that's so I, I, yeah. And that's, you can tell that's how near we got to play as a man who looks like he's in his seventies. I wonder if that's part of the joke with Old Snake. It could be. I think so. I was about to say, as much as this uh, fan who wrote him didn't want to play as an old man again, I can also see him. That's why he made Old Snake um, part of Metal Gear Solid 4. But uh, we'll we'll save that one for a discussion because everything else, I know we back on MGS4 a lot, but I do like the concept of Old Snake. Oh, John Wick. John Wick is even... uh, John Wick is not young. Yeah, John Wick is, has been around long enough that literally everyone in his his universe knows about him. So yeah, like the American action heroes are not are not are almost never rookies. They come with an implied history yeah. or like a set of credentials or status or something like that. Yeah, status I think is the right way to say it. Yeah, uh, we'll dive into you know the history themes and concepts with Raiden like we always do. Uh, the character grew up during the first Liberian Civil War, which was an internal conflict from 1989 to 1997. Um, that went so well that a second war broke out two years later in 1999. Um, and it's especially horrific. 250,000 people are officially listed as dead and heavy foreign innovations from the UN and ECOWAS or uh, Economic Community of Western African States. Um, I'm not going to get here and act like I'm some expert on African politics, but I will tell you anytime the UN or European countries are generally, you know, doing shit in Africa, it's almost always bad and colonialism and terrible. Um, I believe Macron right now is doing a lot of the same shit that's being um, that kind of. Uh, what's it called, relates to, doesn't relate to the Liberian Civil War, but it's the same kind of fuckery that uh, white people have been doing on that continent for God knows centuries at this point. So From the moment that they found it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and uh, here during the Liberian Civil War, the first Liberian Civil War, I should be specific, here is where he met Solidus and grew up to be an infamous child soldier. He being right and not Emmanuel Macron. That would be a much, yes. different, much more different game. <laughs> Although that also wouldn't surprise me. Um, no. Because he... Um, And, you know, all of this is, again, imperialism, anti-military, world at war, child soldier themes already invoked from the first game. And we're going to try our best not to keep hitting these same points. But it is carrying on that meme from Metal Gear Solid. But also it feels like an escalation, like, you know, a good sequel should, because I feel like 
Jack's horrific past is even worse than Solid Snake. I mean, yes. Solid Snake's, uh, you know. That's what I was getting at earlier. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just that much worse. Yeah. People talk about the politics of this series as though, like, it's it doesn't take a stance. It's like, well, yeah, sure, it talks about politics, but it's not – it doesn't have, like, an opinion. I want to say this is a pretty good blanket rule. If 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 somebody puts child soldiers into their into what they're doing, they are not pro war. Yes, like you, you don't you don't see pro war like propaganda about like the the child the, the famous child soldier units that we all like they still exist to these to this day. You the, you know the U.S. military is not going to be like fighting the army so you can go kill child soldiers in Mogadishu. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's not if you if you are using if child soldiers appear in your product, you are not a pro war product. Is what I will say. That's a pretty hard and fast rule. Yes. And child soldiers become such a core part of Metal Gear Solid. I think they talk about it in uh, the first Metal Gear Solid game, mostly that a lot of the Foxhound members were former child soldiers, they mention. But I feel like this one, it feels more prominent as a theme here in Metal Gear Solid 2. And then, like we say, Metal Gear Solid 5 is kind of the Metal Gear, you know, is the game most similar to Metal Gear Solid 2, and that's probably the most child soldier. Yeah, it, well, Revengeance, it comes up a lot in Revengeance. Yes. In an even more brutal and fucked up Metal Gear way. I won't spoil that for you, but that's, uh, it's, okay. it's one of the few things, that game is not go for like really, really heavy-handed, like, it's mostly meant to be kind of silly, but there's, there's, some, there's some stuff in that that's pretty brutal, what it wants to be. Yeah, um. So uh, Raiden's child soldier unit, the entire unit, was repatriated into the U.S., um, required heavy counseling, and the Patriots picked him out early. Um, I said repatriated on purpose. You know, I'm sure that's Patriots. Part of the process of him, you know, being absorbed back into this country. The Patriots were able to keep him off the grid, um, you know, so he wasn't absorbed into the FBI, CIA, NSA, you know, the American institutions that would eat up a child soldier for his skill set. Um, and, you know, this is just another version of Patriots control by being able to keep Raiden a secret from, uh, you know, other agencies. And then he would go under extensive VR training and to an, a large extent suppression of his actual training and history as a child soldier. Um, and then he is chosen by the Patriots because he specifically rejects his past, his reality, because this is a game about questioning reality and what is your past, what is your future. Um, and the whole idea that narrative is about making memories of stories that aren't your own. And that you know, goes hand in hand with questioning and understanding your own reality. Uh, he met he met Rose in 2007 around the time of the tanker incident. I don't have exact dates here, but I think you know those kind of line up. Um, keeping with the game's inspirations, they met on April 30th, which is the same day that George Washington took office in 1789, I believe. Again, invoking American themes, American Revolution themes. Um, they met in New York City. This game's been very, uh, you know, New York heavy just because that's the actual setting. Um, early designs of Raiden actually had him very Spider-Man-like in terms of his motions, that they were kind of uncanny. Um, and those designs would eventually go on to be part of the Fears design for Metal Gear Solid three so we'll come back to him later and then uh in that first time that jack and rose met they argued about and then would watch king kong which is again one of the biggest hollywood touchstones this game again the hollywood game and king kong being about a giant titan beast um definitely not in the news these days for any reason or another um but obviously that invokes both new york a giant beast like metal gear um i think the themes are pretty obvious with that one 
Um, and then we've already mentioned that Raiden is the third person camera on Solid Snake uh, when we were discussing Snake. And whereas Snake is unbounded in the big shell, he's not under the control of anyone else. Raiden is a tool or a puppet um, under the control of both the Patriots and the player. So it's basically the inverse of everything we said during the Solid Snake portion. Now, um, we've talked about this, you know, in passing all through all these episodes, but Raiden is the shadow of Solid Snake, or at least he is until, you know, the last parts of this game. Uh, he, the shadow of Solid Snake, but you could also call him the meme of Shadow Snake, the phantom of Solid Snake. Um, whatever whatever Metal Gear buzzword you want to use, they all apply. The important thing is that he's the style, but not the substance. Um, he has none of the gruff, color, or depth of Solid Snake. Um, he doesn't have any of the coolness, which we can tell, obviously, because Raiden doesn't smoke, and smoking makes you cool. Smoking is cool. Uh, even at this point, uh, Snake was already considered one of the greatest video game heroes, even though most people had only really experienced him in Metal Gear Solid 1. We joked about that, but like uh, Hideo Kojima definitely thinks that smoking is cool, just based on the movies that he watches. Yeah. You can't be a fan of The Terminator and not think smoking is cool, or like Blade Runner or anything like that. Yeah, um, or even just Japanese cinema, uh, cinema because yeah, uh, yeah. Toshiro Mifune is just one of the best-looking smokers of all time. And he's a Lupin fan, so... There. Yeah. Uh, John McClane, James Bond, like everything that Kojima likes, they smoke. Um, so obviously that means smoking. Mads Mikkelsen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, and uh, Solid Snake is very, very masculine in design. And then Raiden is almost without gender. Um, and throughout the game, question, uh, characters question whether he is a woman or a man. Um, we mentioned President Johnson does it, but all sorts of people do it throughout the game. And we mentioned that Raiden was possibly originally conceived as a woman. And if you look at Yoji Shinkawa's art um, and his intentionally wispy and surrealist you know, general art style. Um, when you look at the Raiden designs, I don't think you'd be able to tell, um, you know, that that's supposed to be a male character in this game. Um, he has sharp features that are very similar to how, like, say, Meryl and Olga are designed in Yoji's, uh, you know, artwork. Um, and I'm going to probably retweet some stuff showing uh, Raiden's design, and he could definitely pass as man or woman in that. Yeah, and it's important to note that, like, maybe you could tell like, someone who's not familiar with Metal Gear, but, like, in in contrast to Solid Snake, who is like not, not only do not only is he just like obviously masculine, he's like the the I think until like for the, another ten years or so after this game comes out, he's sort of the the be, like the most constructively masculine character. Like he's sensitive, talks about his feelings, but is like just like the, the person you want to be the most. I only say that because I think. Uh, <laughs> Maybe fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of people who played Red Dead wanted to be John Marston. It's John Marston's awesome, but like also John Marston, the whole point of his character is that he's a giant fuck up who ruined everything. But like he's a cool character. Like he's very masculine and, and like it's important that he spends the last act of that game like doing chores around the house and helping his wife. And like that's that's how he ends his life. Um mm-hmm. but yeah, like 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 uh, until that sort of point, that there, there's not a whole lot of like positively masculine like Nothing. It's not to say that every male video game character was like Duke Nukem, where like even though Duke Nukem's kind of a joke character, at least he was in 1996. But like, there weren't a lot of characters you would say were like positive role models at all. They're either just like blank man who shoot does does gun, or like, (laughs) or like actively like a toxic person, like a toxic character. Yeah, um, and I think I think Metal Gear Metal Gear One Snake is definitely still like it's hard. It's basically impossible to play that game and not 
and like he's a positive character. Like he's he's someone you would want to be like. Yes. And like not just in the cool action hero way, but like as like a person. It's like a person with thoughts and, and sensitive feeling and like who is like a real person and not just a fucking gunman. Right. I I hate to use, uh, use like Tumblr pop psychology speak, but Snake truly is not a toxic masculinity type of character. Um, like, you know, uh, and more often than not, characters, whether it's in films or games, they start that way and then, end, you know, like they're a better person or what, whatever garbage it is. But Snake is like from the get-go kind of not that to- toxic masculine, it's my way or the highway, I know what's going on or I know best. Um, not like, you know, if you're watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier, he's not like John Walker, uh, the U.S. agent character they have playing. So Played by Kurt Russell's son. Yeah, uh, who's actually doing a really bang-up job with it. But yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a fine actor, but that's another. There's a, there's a, Snake is not Snake Plissken. Yes. Who is who is like almost almost to the point of parody, like a completely numb, feelingless, emotionless, like killing machine, basically, who has no... Would not be a, a, an ideal... Uh, romantic partner where i feel like i feel like you could play as a, a straight woman or a gay man or whatever you could play an mgs1 and like think that snake is actually like not like i mean he is but he comes off as more that's just more because he has so much baggage but like as a person he's not like interpersonally a fucking psychopath <laughs> like, yeah 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 he has it's hard to he I, connect I, you, people know what i'm saying I, yeah I, th- I think i think you understand what i'm saying it's just hard to yeah but that i think that's interesting because Raiden is in losing that sort of snakes like masculinity, he also is like, he's a bad boyfriend. He's not a good boyfriend in this game. No, he's not. He's actually really terrible. Now it's revealed that he has reasons for that. Like he has so much, like he doesn't, he doesn't under, like he has all this baggage from being a child soldier that he doesn't understand or remember. So it's understandable. And like one of the, one of the nicer things about four is that he becomes like his character arc there kind of ends with him being like a better spouse. But yeah, uh, in this game, he's just like a snappy dickhead to Rose all the whole game. Just very, very catty. You don't know about his trauma until so much later in the game, and after he's already been kind of snippy and short with Rose. So you kind of have a negative uh, kind of feeling about their relationship or his part in their relationship um, that at least gets contextualized. I don't think any of it makes any of what he said better. Um, but you understand that there is a lot more going on in Raiden's head than the seemingly nothing um when you're introduced to him. So yeah, I, like I said, I, I think it's, it's reasonable to like somebody had, somebody had that kind of trauma and didn't know about it. I think that's at least like a relatively excusable. Yeah. Cause like he does anything wrong. He's just kind of a dickhead. He's not like evil to Rose. And you could tell that like before this, they were probably better off. Like, but, but the, the situation that he's in right now, he's so confused and pissed off and he just, takes it out on Rose when he shouldn't, which is shitty. It's a shitty thing to do, but like snake wouldn't do that. <laughs> that's, that's another reason why he's, he's, he pales in comparison. Right. Right. And I, I can see, uh, you know, st- relationships stressing and breaking under a situation where you're both on a mission where one of you has to fight a bunch of like superpower terrorists. Like, <laughs> and to be fair, to be fair, Rose is also lying to him the whole time, but Hey, yes, he didn't know that. So he doesn't have an excuse. Right. Um, and 
uh, going back to uh, kind of the gender question and the masculine versus the genderless Raiden or the masculine snake versus the genderless Raiden, uh, Kojima also speaks of putting the player into Raiden shoes for a lot of these themes about um, experiencing narrative, creating memories, all that fourth wall breaking thematic stuff we've kind of touched on quite a bit. Um, he, this is a way that he actually allows, um, you know, players that are just not dudes to put themselves in you know, probably more squarely in the shoes of the actual video game character. And I don't want to imply that the game or Kojima is saying anything super progressive or woke about gender, but given that, you know, I think most of us would consider gender to be a societal construct, and this game is about societal constructs, and there's a lot of characters assuming what they, you know, think Raiden's gender is, there is a reading that you can put on this game that, you know, it just it reinforcing the idea that gender is a societal construct and you know it's how we parse information, but whether that's a good way to actually do it, um, I think is what we're challenging now with, you know, what's it called? Uh, pushing against, you know, gen- uh, traditional gender roles and gender legislation and stuff like that. And something that's definitely very much under attack in our mar- modern world as uh, states like Arkansas are passing anti-trans healthcare bills for youths. And um, it's only time before that encompasses all people, um, whether queer, not like all people, but all, you know, LGBTQIA people. Um, so, you know, things are pretty dire in that sense. And I think there is a reading in Metal Gear Solid 2 that um, our whole concept of gender is all constructed by how, you know, we're taking in and processing information. Well, yeah, they did before, you know. But uh, I wanted to say real quick, I, I think it's important that I, we talk, I just talked about how Raiden is demasculated, but Raiden is not effeminate. Like, so whatever, like, he, he's not meant to be a feminine character. So I, maybe, and you know, this is all head on orbitive stuff, but like, it maybe if he was, if he was deliberately an effeminate character, he'd be more. I mean, more cl- the classical, like in touch with his feelings, sort of stuff, right? Um, and he's not that, so he's just sort of he doesn't have, like he, he gent- he's very. I don't know. We've called him androgynous, but that's that's supposed to be kind of in between. Like he's just kind of genderless. He just is kind of yeah, nothing. That's what that's what I like to say. Like he's like he's uh, you know exists without uh, without gender because because we talk about it with his color. Like he's sucked of color. He's just white and pale. I feel the same way of gender. He's kind of sucked of it. It's nothing. And I I was also thinking about the part. You can imagine him as like he's completely sexless. Like he's not. Yeah. I, I guess Rose is pregnant at that point, but I mean, do we know for sure if? You know, who knows if that rose is real even um, well i i mean she is i think it is i think it is and she, she does have a child you're right you're right but so. like but 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 do we know for sure if that came from them having sex or if it was just the patriots put his put like put a baby in rose like we don't know that it's impossible to say like i don't know i i get the feeling that this that ride as he exists right right before this game like the ride who was living with oh ah, no they were living together but the ride who was with rose it just comes off as a very sexless like just so tra- traumatized and fucked up and destroyed by his experiences that he again that he doesn't understand that he doesn't remember that I feel like he probably is just completely asexual like incapable of performing in any way performing gender performing gender in any way either I think that's interesting yeah because he's not like a bread he's not he definitely doesn't see himself as like a the breadwinner tr- you know traditional protector ma- uh, male role I don't think he sees himself as that so he's just completely the Patriots have have destroyed him as a person in every way. I feel like 
Yeah. Um, and that's also kind of why I mentioned uh, David Bowie, who I think kind of exists, um, you know, outside of how we traditionally define, um, you know, man, woman, gender. But I was also thinking about... Well, the, definitely, definitely Kojima would, would think of David yeah. Bowie. Yeah. Um, but I was also thinking about that Arsenal gear portion where you're naked and you're wandering around and you're covering your genitals. Like, even when you do cartwheels, you're covering your genitals. And that can also play into this idea that, um, you know, he is without gender. We never really find out because he never reveals it, you know, to us. Like Raiden, Raiden does not fuck him out of his own, too. Yeah. He's, he, is a, he is a completely sexless entity to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we'll kind of wrap up because the question is, who is Raiden? So let's talk about Raiden and identity. Um, Raiden or Jack, he actively wears many names in this game, whether it's Snake to start off or Raiden or Jack. Um, his various names during the war, like the White Devil or Jack the Ripper. Um, this is all very distinct from Snake, who's pretty much the solid snake, the snake that goes by Snake. When you say Snake, there's only one snake you really think of. You don't think of Liquid or Solidus. We'll forget about Big Boss and Naked snake for now uh but like that's like the difference like yeah he's named david but you really call snake snake and that's the end of that whereas jack we've interchangeably referred to him as Ryden jack uh throughout these synopses well even naked snake uh the boss of resume is jack yeah the whole game i don't think she almost never calls him snake so yeah like the this is Snake. Solid Snake is Snake. Yeah, you're right to say that. Um, and, you know, Raiden, you know, we've talked how he rejects his past, um, whether it's act of suppression or, um, you know, just, you know, kind of not acknowledging it, not coming to grips with it, which is in itself distinct from Solid Snake again, uh, because Snake is actively, you know, taking responsibility for his past and fighting for a future, um, which is what he encourages Raiden to start doing right now is like, you can always, you can always stop being part of the problem and start being part of the solution. You know, you can't say goodbye to yesterday, but you can, you know, welcome tomorrow with open arms. So, um, I think that's a very important part and he's a blank slate through most of this game, uh, so that the player can self-insert to go along with the fact that he's genderless. So the player can self-insert or the many other ways that this game or this character allows you the player to self-insert as the character. I think that's interesting because uh, that's a common, I mean, even now it's still very common. I mean, a lot of the most famous protagonists in video game history, Link is that kind of character. Gordon Freeman is that kind of character. Master Chief is that kind of character, the doom guy. And sometimes it's just, you know, developers don't want to make an actual character because they don't know people will like it. But I, I do wonder if Kojima, I mean, that's obviously a trope that he would have understood at this point. It, it existed already. Um, even like it's 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 interesting that even in the late '90s, as soon as characters started being voiced, people started noting about how strange it is that some of them didn't have one. But I would I do wonder if Kojima saw that and tried to sort of transplant that. Like, what would a real person be if they were a blank slate? <laughs> and it turns out that their existence would be fucking nightmarish. They would have nothing. Just complete. Like like not that like, not to say that there are people who. Like, again, I call them asexual, so that's negative. There are people who are asexual. That's just what they are. But Raiden, like, I'm saying that Raiden is, wasn't asexual. Like, the Patriots made him into this. Mm -hmm. And so he's become sexless and, and sort of affectless and sort of just kind of has nothing. He's just completely, like, has had all of his personality sucked out. Right. And, like, it's, it's, it's making his life into a fucking nightmare. Yeah. Like, he just completely has nothing. In his life it's horrible 
It seems like a horrible existence. Yeah, and I think that the whole child soldier past plays into that because then way he's kind of a broken person. So it's easier for the Patriots to continue just scooping out all the humanity within him um, because he's already like that whole facade is shattered because that's what happens when you become a killing war machine at the age of 10 or whatever it was that Raiden did. So uh, that's pretty much all I had on Raiden, who we've contested may or may not be the protagonist of this game. Uh, is there anything else you want to add on the character? I mean, it's interesting that this is, we just kind of get introduced to this Raiden, and now he's got, like, from this point on, he has, he self-actualized. He has a purpose. To the extent that, and, and like I said, MGR, you're going to, I don't know, I'm interested to see how you respond to, uh, to Revengeance Raiden, because he's definitely not this. He's very much a character. has has he still has the same backstory and a lot of the same baggage but like i'll just say it for now they they turn the jack the ripper thing into like a uh it becomes a uh alternate personality that he kind of lapses into as the as the fighting and revenge gets more and more brutal to where he becomes like a sadist and a masochist oh wow and it's like that's how, that's how he kind of empowers himself to be to be able to defeat these extremely strong enemies and uh it's like brutal and terrifying and also cool. It's meant to be cool. Like it's meant to be like this thing Ryan can do to sort of detach himself from being a person and just become like this complete destroyer. Revengeance has a weird relationship with violence where like it has, it's very much an anti-war. Like I said, the villains are uh, a PMC company and a, a senator using them to incite world war. But it also, I think the way that it, I think it's done on purpose because the way I don't think there's a way to have Raiden be your character and not have him be violent. That's just what Raiden is. He's a at this point in the series, he's a fucking nint. Like he's the most powerful character in Metal Gear. Um, uh, I just want to say, uh, if you watch the old Ninja Turtle movies and Leonardo with his two katanas and just hitting people with the blunt side and smacking them on the ass, like no, no. <laughs> I mean, Revengeance is a it, Revengeance is a uh, it's a Platinum Games game. He, it's he cuts people the fuck up in that game. Uh, to the extent that we'll talk about it, but like they actually they actually got rid of all all human enemies because they were like they didn't think the game could be released if you were like cutting real people into ribbons. It's all they're all also cyborgs, which is weird because you you still kill them, but they leak out cyborg juice and not blood, so it's fine. They got past the sensors, <laughs> <laughs> but they're all also like there's a there's a big there's a big thing in that game about how all a lot of the uh, rank and file cyborgs that you fight against have been like digitally had their personalities almost wiped so they're just like mindless soldiers um and that's stuff Raiden's fighting against so it's interesting it's interesting the way that that game deals with uh with with violence and war in a way that's it's like it's con it's condemnatory but probably because it's a platinum game game they're also like also it'd be cool if Raiden uh cut Metal Gear Ray in half right that'd be cool right yeah and it would it is Spoiler alert, it's cool as fuck. <laughs> yeah, that's it's an interesting game. It's a game that takes this Raiden and makes an MGS4 Raiden and really sort of pushes him sort of to the stretches him out to all these extremes in every direction. It's a fascinating character. Yeah, no, I'm actually really excited to track Raiden through MGS4 and Revengeance when we get to that. Uh, because, like you said, he's a totally different character. He self-actualizes. Um, it's almost uh, MGS4 is a bit of a role reversal from this, where Raiden's the much cooler character than, you know, not not cooler than Old Snake, but, you know. Much more competent. Yes, like, competent, yeah. capable, you know, has a skill set that, you know, Snake still is, even though he's taking down superhuman level, you know, 
enemies. He's still just a dude with weapons, pretty much. Um, a really good dude with weapons, but just a dude with weapons. Whereas Raiden's seemingly, you know, t- gone to that next Gray Fox level a level of abilities or like an enemy unit guy. But I, I think he's, I think he's, maybe I'm letting Revengeance bleed into it, but I think even MGS4, I think he's way beyond Gray Fox. Like, yeah, for sure. I agree. Yeah. Uh, cause Gray Fox, well, partly because Gray Fox said, didn't have like had his mind completely fractured and wasn't really able to access his full abilities but also in the advancements in cyborg ninja technology which i assume in metal gear universe is like a real field you know some people go to school for robotics some people go to school for you know i I got a i got into caltech (laughs) on a cyborg ninja scholarship i'm sure that happens in metal gear i mean with their frequency it has to so Raiden, we don't carry guns to take people down we're not here to help some politician either you can say that because you're a legend, a hero. I'm Jack the Ripper, a dirty reminder of a terrible mistake. Legends don't mean a whole lot. I was just a name to exploit, just like you. People will remember only the good part, the right part of what you did. There's no right part in murder, not ever. And we're not in this to make a name for ourselves. Then what are you and Otacon fighting for? A future. You can stop being part of a mistake. Starting now. What am I? What am I supposed to do? And with that, that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontieres at gmail.com and at podsansfront on twitter.com and instagram.com. A quick note for my fellow A Song of Ice and Fire fans, I'm going to be appearing on the Nauticast podcast coming up, uh, talking about Brand 7, the final chapter of A Clash of Kings, uh, one of the more emotional chapters from the entire A Song of Ice and Fire story. And for those more familiar with the show Game of Thrones, it's where Bran emerges from the crypts at the end of season two, finds his dying maester, and then finally leaves Winterfell to begin his journey north of the walls. So um, I know a lot of you followed me for my Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire content. So please check that out. And with that, I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I remain Brian. We're all born with an expiration date. No one lasts forever. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. And until next time, remember, you can't say goodbye to yesterday.